We come now to the New Testament, to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. After these things, the Lord appointed seventy others also, and sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. Then he said to them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. Carry neither money bag, knapsack, nor sandals, nor greet, and greet no one along the road. But whatever house you enter, first say, Peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on it. If not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat such things as are set before you. And heal the sick there, and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whatever city you enter, and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say, The very dust of your city which clings to us we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near you. But I say to you that it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For he who hears you hears me, he who rejects you rejects me, and he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Then the seventy returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in the spirit and said, I thank you, Father. Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Then he turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I tell you, that many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see and have not seen it, and to hear what you hear and have not heard it. God add his blessing to that reading of his word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, truly, if we see anything, it is because the Spirit of God will have opened our eyes. And Lord, we pray that you would have mercy upon us, and that, Lord, truly, we would be able to say, blessed are Our eyes, for they have seen these things, and our ears, for they have heard them, and our hearts, for they have imbibed them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
By my account, this is now the 51st sermon in the book of Luke, and we have barely begun to cover all the many themes that are to be found in it. And I was surprised to note that I had not yet really said too much about the theme of joy. Luke has roughly two dozen references to joy. That's about twice as many as the next most, which would be in the Gospel of John. And we see this theme right from the beginning, Luke 1.14. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. Going on also in Luke 2.10, the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for I, behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. That's the nature of the gospel. That is the nature of the incarnation. What is so wonderful about it, it is good news of great joy. And it carries on to the very end. Almost the last verse in this, in this book, Luke 24, 52 and 53, and they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and they were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. And you see how it is framed in that way. The coming of Christ is an occasion of great joy. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is an occasion of great joy. And to the end that God's people are praising and blessing him in God's house. That is the point of these things. So Luke cares about joy. It is very clear. And we remind ourselves that he is Dr. Luke. And he has a particular concern to observe the occasions and the presence of joy. When the people just as a physician looks and notices the occasions, the causes of disease, he can look at someone and say, this one is not well, and I think I know what it is. I think I know what has brought him to this position of being diseased and sickly and weak. And Luke, spiritual physician, looks and says, I observe there is joy here, and I want to point out to you the causes of that joy. And we cannot forget that this is the end. This is the, the goal of our redemption. Now, ultimately, of course, it is to bring glory to God. We do not say that with regard to God. Everything, every last thing, whether our salvation or even the damnation of the, the unrepentant sinners, this is all to the glory of God. But as for us, where are we going in all this? Where, what is this leading to? Our own redemption, it is leading to joy. That is what God intends to bring us to. And so in God's communication to us, it is not merely that we know about God. It is not merely even that we know God. But in that knowing God in a saving way, putting our faith in Christ, having been regenerated by the Spirit, that we rejoice in Him. That this brings us into a state of ever greater joy all throughout eternity, knowing things about God, loving God more, and rejoicing in Him more and more. And so let us consider some reasons this morning to rejoice. If the passage before us, it's giving, recounting the situation of the 70 missionaries returning. And they are already joyful, and for good reason. But Jesus gives them even more reason to be joyful. And we see that Jesus himself rejoices in these things. So let us consider these reasons to rejoice. Reasons to rejoice. First, the demons are subject Second, you have authority to trample them. Third, your names are written in heaven. And fourth, great mysteries have been revealed to you. My apologies for the length of these titles, but I, I think they we're trying to remember these reasons, which I'll now repeat. The, the demons are subject to you. You have authority to trample on them. Your names are written in heaven. 
And great mysteries have been revealed to you. So first, the demons are subject to you. Then the the 70 return, verse 17. The 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. It's very understandable that they would be joyful because this is not expected. It was not even something that Jesus had said. He said, look, I'm sending you as lambs among sheep among wolves. So, you know, be careful. And he says, I will provide for you. But he doesn't actually say, I'm going to give you authority over the demons. He sends them out to, to heal. But he actually, they end up casting out these many demons. So it wasn't expected, and I would say it's hardly inevitable that demons are going to obey mere men. That's the whole point. When we come to these exorcisms in the Gospels, they are miracles. They point to the divinity of Christ precisely because demons just don't listen to ordinary people. And when they listen to Jesus, that's proof of his divinity. So in these great miracles, no wonder they were surprised that they were able to do the very same things. Or consider the situation in Acts 19, where the the demons uh, weren't subject to the sons of Sceva. In Acts 19.13, then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the, the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. They weren't Christians. They weren't believers. They didn't have the Holy Spirit. But they saw that Paul was able to, to cast them out in the name of Christ, and they wanted to do it too. So the evil spirit answered them and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. There were one against seven, and that's what happened to them. They fled out of that house. But that didn't happen to the 70. It was the demons that had to flee. They were right to be joyful at such things. That they had, even the demons are subject to them. But even more remarkable is a reason that Jesus gives for this authority in, in verse 18. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I mean, he says it so suddenly, it's almost uh, it's so unexpected that, that you can pass us by and we don't recognize the significance of these things. But we have to remember that in God's sovereign plan, in his wisdom, Satan actually had a place in heaven. He could go there and he used that place to do ill to God's people. You know that in Job and in Zechariah, he accuses Job and brings upon him these horrible trials. Hardly any worse could be imagined than all the things that he suffered And in Zechariah, to accuse God's people. Now, Satan's fall from heaven was surely a great event to be longed for by God's people. If you can imagine, you're Job, and all of your children have died. And and you're in, in terrible pain and disease, and you have nothing left. And you think to yourself, I wish that Satan were no longer in heaven, having the ability to accuse me. And, and, and we speak of, of course, Zechariah the high priest and the ability of someone, of Satan, to accuse him and the people that he represents. Well, we are thankful that that, that event is accounted in, in Revelation twelve seven. And war broke out in the heaven. Michael and his angels fought with a dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. 
Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who, who accuse them before our God day and night has been cast down. And that is an occasion for rejoicing in heaven. They are worshiping on this occasion that Satan is cast down. He's no longer able to do as he did with Joshua the high priest to accuse him. And it's a day and an occasion for rejoicing. And Jesus is saying that that day had come. The day had come when Jesus was cast out of heaven. He can't do those things anymore to us. What they had experienced was no fluke. It was no accident. But rather, they had authority over those demons, those underlings, because the leader of the demons was being defeated by Christ and was cast out of heaven. Now, some of the details, perhaps we'll think more about these later when we consider in the very next chapter, Luke eleven twenty one, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divided his, and divides his spoils. And Jesus is speaking of his victory over Satan, the strong man. He is binding him and he is taking his stuff. That is what is going on now as his disciples go out in his name and have authority over demons because their leader has been defeated. Well, that's great reason to rejoice. But Jesus is going to give them even more because Jesus goes on in our second point to give them authority to trample serpents. Verse 19, Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. This is an intensification of what we've already seen. It's not only that the demons will be subject to you, that they'll do what you you say, but you will trample on them, and they'll have absolutely no ability to hurt you, to harm you. This is essentially, by the way, exactly what we have in, in Mark chapter 16, And towards the end, verses 17 and 18. And these signs will follow those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons and they will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents and if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. Now, people have have considered that this means all sorts of things. Some of you probably know that there are those uh, snake handlers, uh, extreme Pentecostals who go around handling snakes to demonstrate that the snake can't hurt them. But really, if you simply compare Scripture with Scripture, you have two nearly identical sections here. And very clear in Luke, it's talking about Satan. It's not talking about ordinary snakes with their ordinary venom, which are absolutely going to bite you, as many a snake handler, no matter how much faith they had, has happened to them, unfortunately. It's talking about Satan. It's a far more important thing. We don't actually have all that many venomous serpents here in England, do we? It's not something we daily worry about being bit by a snake. But we do worry, don't we, about the power of Satan. And what a wonderful thing, then, it is to have this assurance that he can't really harm us. In this spiritual context, he's saying, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Well, what is he talking about here? Who is he talking about? Well, we've just mentioned Revelation twelve nine. that great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. 
It's reiterated in, in Revelation 20, verse 2. He laid hold of that dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So if you didn't know who the serpent was, if you didn't know who he's talking about, the Bible is making it very clear for you. It is the devil. He is a serpent. And that serpent of old is a reference to the fact that he's no new serpent, but he is the same one back in Genesis 3, 1, that deceived Eve in the garden. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast in the field. And that serpent has been deceiving people for a long time. Notice God's words, though, to Satan in Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, the thing is, that prophecy, which is a wonderful prophecy, it's a statement of the gospel, that prophecy has primarily to do with, with Jesus's, the Lord Jesus Christ's victory over Satan. He's going to crush the serpent's head. But now Jesus is extending that and saying, you, you will have authority to trample on serpents. What a wonderful thing. Now, it actually mentions scorpions as well. And the thing that both serpents and scorpions have in common is the fact that they, well, they're not very big, are they? They're not like some giant grizzly bear that will simply overpower you having no other weapon. The thing that is so fearsome and so problematic with, with these, and, and theoretically you could quite easily step on a snake, and theoretically you could quite easily step on a scorpion. But the reason why you wouldn't ordinarily want to do that is because they might bite you. And because they, they have venom, don't they? This venom, this poison that is in them, it, it's not like hitting you over the head with a club with brute force, but this poison enters your body and it destroys you from the inside out. Now that is the nature, you see, of what, G, what Jesus is talking about. The potential harm that Satan is going to cause you is the same harm that, that he caused Eve in the garden, speaking lies to deceive you. And to destroy you spiritually. Now it is no off chance. It's no minor occurrence. Or something that only happens occasionally. That that Satan is actually able to deceive people through his poison. But rather we know that the whole world lies under the wicked one. His lies work all too well. By the way, that comparison between lies and, and that of a and the, the venom of a serpent is made very explicitly clear in Psalm fifty eight, verse three. The wicked are strained from the womb, they go astray as soon as they are born, speaking lies. Their poison is like the poison of a serpent. That's God's typology. He has created serpents, some of which are poisonous, just so that we understand this idea of something that would otherwise not be able to harm us. And therefore, maybe we're not on our guard as we should. We're not, we're not seeing the snake. It's not like a grizzly bear that you can hear for miles. But then when it bites you, perhaps unaware, this poison is injected into you, which causes you to turn away from the Lord. As I say, the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. But praise God, there are some exceptions to that. Because that very previous verse in 1 John 5, we know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself and the wicked one does not touch him. You see how that works? That's what the promise is talking about when he says, I'm going to give you power to trample on these serpents and they won't be able to hurt you. That those who have been born of God, those who have the Holy Spirit, 
Even when these poisonous lies come to us, they won't ultimately kill us. They won't ultimately get us because God is watching over his own people and through the power of the Holy Spirit is keeping them from the poisonous, deadly lies of Satan. Now that brings us to our third point, because you then have to say, well, is that true for everyone? Why is it that some people are subject to uh, this problem of being subject to lies and other ones are not? Well, the third reason to rejoice is that our names are written in heaven. Because the Lord just keeps pouring it on. First, they rejoice. Look, look, the demons have left when we told them to. Then he says, well, moreover, I'm going to give you actually authority to trample on those same demons. But thirdly, he points us to an even better reason. In verse 20, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Now, as you know, so many times in Scripture, when you have that that formula of not only this, but rather this, it's not saying this is completely illegitimate. The X, the first thing, is utterly illegitimate. Don't do it at all. But rather, what it's saying is that this may be good. And they're rejoicing over having authority over demons. That's okay. But over here is vastly better than that. Vastly more important than that. Because this thing here... The fact that their names are written in heaven, that's what explains what is over here. And this over here, the fact that their names are written in heaven, it encompasses so much more than merely having authority over demons. No, they have been given authority to trample over the power of the enemy. That is, that's just one symptom of a greater, much deeper reality that their names are actually written in heaven. And the, the fact that they're, they're trampling over the powers of darkness is just proof positive of this wonderful thing, that they have their names written in heaven. Now we have in several places in scripture, we have this phenomenon that this is actually the case. There really is some sort of book in heaven in which the names of God's people are written. You can think of it in different ways, like in Deuteronomy twenty nine nineteen, it says, if someone hears the words of this curse that he blesses himself in his heart saying, I shall have peace even though I follow the dictates of my heart, In verse 20, the Lord would not spare him, for then the anger of the Lord and his jealousy would burn against that man, and every curse that is written in his book would settle on him, and the Lord would blot out his name from under heaven. So there's the idea of a book of of life, um, of which every name is originally written, but they are blotted out at some point. But of course, we know also there is the, the Lamb's book, of life in which all those who are ever going to be redeemed are written in, in Jesus' book. You know, we do that, don't we? I, I must admit, there, I have a list of the names of the people of this church. There is a membership role. And there is also, I keep, I, I hope I, I note the names of those who come to visit and so forth. Well, how much more so the Lord Jesus Christ, the Redeemer of all, he's to keep track of all of them. He's going to have to come before the Father, and he's going to say, I've lost not one of the ones that you gave him. And he has to know, therefore, the ones that he has been given. And he has, therefore, the Lamb's Book of Life, which every one of our names, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, your name has been written in this wonderful Lamb's Book of Life. And that's a reason to rejoice. Now, the wonderful thing is that you can ascertain whether your name is written there. Jesus reasoned from the fact that they have authority over the demons and said, well, if that's true of you, if you actually do, 
That means you have the Holy Spirit in you. That means you have put your faith in me, and therefore your name must be written in heaven. And the same principle applies to you, brethren. Beloved, if you have put your faith in Christ, if you follow him, if you have the Holy Spirit, then your name, likewise, is written in heaven. And each and every time that you find out, each and every time that you're reminded that the demons don't have authority over you, when there is some lie, when there is some temptation, when there is particularly some heresy that has been spoken and you're immune to it, you don't fall prey to it like, unfortunately, your neighbors do in various ways. You should rejoice not that you're so wonderfully strong, but that your name is written in heaven and this is just a reminder of that truth. Well, what it says, I think just to put these, these aspects of this together, the fact that those names written in heaven, the fact that God's people are not going to fall prey to Satan's uh, deceptions, I think we can put those particularly together in Revelation 13.8. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. This is the beast. All will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. you see that? That's another way of thinking about it. If your name hasn't been written in that book of life, then you will certainly be worshiping the beast. Reiterated also in Revelation 17, 8. The beast that you saw and was not will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that was and is not. And so Jesus says, Okay, you're not falling prey to Satan. Those demons don't have power over you. You have power over them. That must mean that your name is written in my book. And he knows that it is. And we should rejoice at such things. If indeed that is true. If indeed it could be said of you or I that our names are written in this book, what a cause of rejoicing that is. That means that nothing will ever, ever be able to keep us from Christ. That means that it does not matter how many of, of Satan's minions come against us and seek to destroy us. It doesn't matter how many heresies are there to seduce us and to pull us away from Christ. It won't happen. It can't happen. But rather, we will one well, day after day, week after week, we will be living proof that Satan's lies do not have effect over everyone. There are a few in this world that are not under the sway of the wicked one. Our names have been written in heaven. We rejoice. Well, Jesus doesn't stop there. Fourthly, this revelation is given to babes. In verse 21, in that hour, Jesus rejoiced in the spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in your sight. Well, it is one thing to note the reason that they're, they're already rejoicing. It's another thing to say, look, I'll tell you more than that. There's, there are greater reasons to rejoice than merely what you have already seen, my children. But then Jesus himself can't resist. Now he, he falls into it as well. He is now rejoicing at these things. And his rejoicing is not that they have authority over the demons, although I'm sure that's, that's nice. He's not even rejoicing 
at the idea that their names are written in heaven. Of course, he has possession of that book. What is amazing to him, what particularly strikes him, is the fact that they, these babes, know these things. And, and we need to remind ourselves of that. We go through the Gospels and we're constantly, we're, we're sometimes taken aback, actually, by how dim they are, by how slow on the uptake they are. They do not get the things that Jesus tells them at first. They are not noted for their amazing intelligence, nor for their amazing wisdom or any of these things. It is just not true. You could not possibly read that. I don't think any psychologist on the face of the earth who perhaps does IQ testing would would read the Gospels and say, wow, these people were geniuses. You wouldn't say that. You would say average, maybe a bit below average, really. And, And God intended that, you see. Because it is not only for the wise. It is not only for the great and, and the geniuses of this world that this gospel is given. But it is given to everyone of God's elect. Well, anyways, the particular point is here that God has not just given sort of equal opportunity in these things. But he has actually kept these things away from the wise of the world. It says... These things, uh, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent. Isn't that an amazing thing? But again, you have to imagine what's, what, the, what the situation. And he's talking, I think, primarily about the Jewish leaders. He's talking about the, the scribes and Pharisees, all of whom pretty much, with some exceptions, but the vast majority of which are completely rejecting Christ, rejecting the way of salvation. They're saying, we don't want this, we're not going to have it, we don't believe it. And the, the way of salvation is absolutely hidden from them, these wise ones. But now these simple fishermen, for the most part, God has revealed himself to. That, that's an amazing act of sovereign grace. And Jesus is rejoicing in his heavenly father in one of his greatest acts of sovereign grace. And when I say sovereign grace, what do I mean? Why do we talk about sovereign grace? Because the, the false idea of grace is, is no grace at all. The false idea of grace is that we're all exactly the same. Some of us are a little bit quicker than others. Some of us are a little bit more faithful than others. And therefore we believe the gospel when others don't. But that's not sovereign grace. Sovereign grace is God being the king, the sovereign, and saying, I choose to give the gift of the Holy Spirit to you. I choose to give eternal life to you. And I don't have to explain myself to anyone why I choose to give it to you and not to someone else. Because he is Lord and he is sovereign in these things. And Jesus is amazed as he looks and he says, the Father, you have, you have withheld these things. You have hidden them from the wisest of this world. And you've given them to these babes, these simpletons, these very ordinary people before me. And he rejoices. He's amazed. What an act of generosity. What an act of grace. This is, this is the, generous, the heart of a generous heavenly Father in giving these things in such a way. He delights in it. And he goes on in verse 22. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. So it is, by the way, not only the Father, as the Son is amazed and as he rejoices in these things. And of course, we know that's the key 
Every time that we look at the the word and the works of God, we should rejoice in his wisdom, rejoice in his sovereignty, rejoice in his grace. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ is doing, and he is our model. But he's saying not only his father, but but that same power, that same authority applies to me. It's only I am the one who can reveal these things too, he says. Now, as he explains this, as he explains all these things, the right conclusion is to draw what he says in verse 23. And he turned to his disciples and said privately, I get, I, we take it that he had been speaking to a larger group here. But now he's turning to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things that you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see and have not seen it, and to hear what you hear and have not heard it. And the Lord Jesus Christ knows that. The Lord Jesus Christ, as the pre-incarnate appearance of the, the great angel of the Old Testament, he has heard requests. He has heard desires to understand more of these things. Daniel, you remember, he wants to know more about these things, even though he's been so much has been said to him, so much has been revealed in the end. The answer is, go your way, Daniel. These things will have their fulfillment. You, you fulfill what is before you, even though so much has been revealed to him. Likewise with Moses, likewise with great kings as well as prophets, they desire to look into these things. We know that even the angels desire to look into these things. Can you imagine then? The Lord Jesus Christ, under the sovereign plan of the Father, not telling these things to the angels that were with him in heaven. And now they're known to these simple fishermen. And Jesus can only say, blessed are your eyes. Do you understand just how blessed your eyes are? Have you ever thought how blessed your eyes are, brothers and sisters? If you see Christ, you are seeing something that people far greater than you have desired to see. If you know this gospel of salvation, even God's people would have loved to have known it in the detail and the clarity that you know it. Even the simplest among us know far more than the, the greatest wisdom of the ancients. Do you know that, children? That if you can see Christ, if you know the gospel, if you know the word of God, that you are very blessed, aren't you, James? You're very blessed if you know these things. Blessed are your eyes if you see them. Blessed are your ears if they have been opened to hear the word of God and to be saved. Jesus rejoices in these things. Do you rejoice in these things? Do you rejoice in in your eyes seeing them and, and others seeing them? Well, surely that's our main application in all this. The whole sermon is about joy. These are reasons to rejoice, and that is the application. That is the imperative to you. You ought to rejoice. All the points are applications. You're not under the sway of the wicked one. Rejoice. You actually have authority over him and his demons. Rejoice. That's the thing. When we resist Satan, he has to flee from us. He's not going to overpower us and trample on us. It's only when we we want to listen to him, by the way, that he has any power. No, no, no. When we resist him, he has to flee. All of his, there could be millions of of demons coming against one Christian. And if we, in our humility, 
And in our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, resist them. They all will have to flee. We have that. That is a reason to rejoice. And we rejoice to a far greater extent that our names are written in heaven. What can we say to that? That God and his goodness, and we, I hope you understand, it is not because of our goodness that our name is written in heaven. Those names, by the way, do not have marks next to them that put them there. Now, we have. There may be a different record in which we have different rewards in heaven. We've spoken about that. But the Lamb's Book of Life, the Lamb's Book of Life doesn't have our marks as to how well we've done and to some calculus, some calculation as to why we should be worthy to be in that book. It's, It's devoid of all those things. Rather, it's written in blood, you see. It's written in the blood of the one who's writing that book and keeping that record and keeping us of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our names are there because of the shed blood of Christ and for no other reason. And again, I would address myself to anyone who has not put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You should be very thankful that you're hearing these words. You should be thankful that there is such a book. There is a way of salvation by the Lord who has laid down his life for sinners such as you. And and I want you to know that none of us here are any better than you. If you think of yourself as being too great a sinner for you to possibly come to faith, for you possibly to be saved, that is not true. Absolutely not true. Rather, sometimes I think the Lord takes delight in saving the very worst in order that his glory may be the greater. Well, I would say... And all these things, if you hear, if you believe, then you ought to rejoice that your name is written in heaven. And that these eternal mysteries have been revealed to you. It is an amazing thing, truly. We, we sometimes forget ourselves, but we are here at the ends of the world. So far away from Jerusalem, here in northern England, a place sometimes even looked down by, by others in the northeast. But we are hearing things that the very greatest of the world would have desired to have known, but have not. But rejoice that eternal mysteries have been revealed to you. Now this is a command, by the way, to rejoice. First Thessalonians 5.16 says, rejoice always. It's just a simple command. It doesn't say anything more. You don't need any more reason. You've been told, rejoice. But... Other parts of the scripture say a little bit more. Philippians 3, 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For to me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Meaning, I've said it before and I'm going to say it again. It's not tedious. It is safe. It is good and comforting for you and right that you should know to rejoice. And the object is always in the Lord. Jesus himself, he's the great example of that. When he's rejoicing, he's not rejoicing so much in them. He's rejoicing in the Lord's goodness to them. And so it is, all of the things that we can say, all the reasons that we have to rejoice, they're all based in the Lord himself. Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord always, again I say rejoice in all these things. And I'll give some more, some specific then reasons to rejoice as well, or objects, uh, elements of these things. I would say rejoice in the hope of glory. Romans 5.2, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of glory. Now, we, I hope you, I, ho- I hope that we all thrill at the thought of heaven. And when we read as elements of God's word that speak about heaven, I hope that your, your heart is rejoiced. I hope that you, are, you have a thrill to think of soon enough coming into heaven. 
But I want you to understand that the hope of glory is none other than the hope of Christ. You see, what we're doing when we're thinking about heaven is we're thinking about Christ. John 16, 22, Therefore you now have sorrow, but I will see you again. And your heart will rejoice. And your joy no one will take away from you. You know why? Because I'll be there. I'll see you. You'll see me. And your heart will rejoice. And no one will be able to take away your joy. When we rejoice in the hope of glory, we're rejoicing in being with Christ. Secondly, I'd say rejoice over those who repent. And Jesus is taking great delight in these people, in his own disciples. But Luke 15.10 reminds us, soon enough we'll see that. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, please, I do not mean to take away the slightest from the glory of God of which we do evangelism for. Or from our compassion, we have compassion on our friends and our relatives and our neighbors. That's why we say invite them to Christianity Explored. But do you know what I secretly really want? And I'm, I'm so hoping and praying, please, Lord, let them invite people, let somebody come to, to, to Christian Explored who would then put their faith in Christ because I want that joy, because I want to see that, because I want to see someone coming to Christ. It's been too long. Now, I know you'll say some congregations go years and years and years with seeing no one come to Christ. And thankfully, that hasn't been the case with us. But it has been a while, hasn't it? It's been too long. We want the joy that comes from seeing somebody coming to Christ. We rejoice over those who repent. Now, thankfully, we don't have to just do it at the moment of the repentance. And we should remind ourselves of those among us, those among us who have repented and put our, put our faith in Christ and should be re- refreshed in our joy. And I would urge you, I would challenge you, as you go about today, as you talk to people If you don't know their story, if you don't know how it is that they ended up being a Christian, maybe you should ask, and maybe the Lord would bring joy through those things. Thirdly, I want to make you rejoice by your walking in truth. It says in 2 Corinthians one twenty four, Not that we have dominion over your faith, but we are fellow workers for your joy, for by faith you stand. And what he's saying is, I, I'm not, I, I'm not de- having dominion, I'm not lording it over you, but I, I want you to be joyful, and I'm doing whatever I can to make you joyful. And Paul knows that the one surefire way to make someone joyful is to feed them the word of God, to, to challenge them to be obedient to it, to continually remind them of it and to pray for them, and that's what he's saying he's doing. He's a worker for your joy. And brothers and sisters, I hope you know I hope you can look back in your life and say the moments that have been most joyful are the ones where I've been most filled with the word of God, where I've been most obedient. Those are the joyful times. Those are the times I want to recreate or even increase from. And that's, that's why apparently you have me. Believe it or not, you, you have a minister. You have elders, Jonathan, myself, Josh. You have them in order that you might have joy. And I'm just saying to you, get your money's worth. If you, if you have me, then, then get everything you can out of that deal. Because I'm supposed to be a worker for your joy. Let me do that. Let me be your worker for your joy. Fourthly, 
I want you to make me rejoice by walking in truth. So that's what John says in 3 John 1, 3-4. For I rejoice greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you. Just as you walk in the truth, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. I have no greater joy than to know that my children walk in truth. It's so true. So true as a father. That is exactly the way I feel. There's no greater joy when I see my children walking in truth. But amazingly, in God's wonderful provision, though I'm nowhere near as as old chronologically as some of you, that I have that sort of relationship with his flock. And I rejoice to hear when you're walking in truth. Every time I hear, I particularly, I like to hear good gossip, good reports, secondhand reports of your obedience, your righteousness, your acts of love and generosity and, and faithfulness against compromise and evangelism and all these things. I rejoice. And I, I, so let me make you joyful and you make me joyful by delighting in the word of God and walking in it in truth. Fifthly and finally, and there are so many other things to say about rejoicing. We've said some of them recently, but I'll just say one more, that we ought to rejoice with those who rejoice. So in this specific application of me, me pressing the issue of you making the rounds and actually talking to those you don't ordinarily talk to, I want you to rejoice with those who rejoice. Not only to know their stories, to be reminded how it is they ever came to Christ, which is a good reason to rejoice but to know if they are rejoicing and to take that on yourself because Romans 12:15 says rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep because we are a body we are all in it together and if there's a source for one of us to for instance to weep then we should all weep together because those things are not done in isolation they affect us and in a church of size, though, there ought to be also someone who has a reason, a particular reason to rejoice. And we ought to make it our business to find out who it is. Who is it, the one among us who has some particular reason to rejoice? And you, if you're that one, please tell us so we can rejoice with you. It has nothing to do with pride. It has nothing to do with self-sufficiency. It's rather pointing us to the great God who is so good as to give his people reasons to rejoice. And we need it. The rest of us need that. And so we come, not as individuals. We're so self-centered. That's so much of our problem sometimes, isn't it? We're only looking in ourselves and what is happening today for reasons to rejoice. How, how silly is that? We have all of us. And if any one of us has a good reason to rejoice, then that means all the rest of us should feed off of that. I'd say, by the way, we ought to not look just at today. We ought to enlarge our scope for what has happened in the past and what is going to happen in the future. But if you're... You're in difficulty and you, you, don't, you lack joy. You ought to look at it in God's word, of course. Ultimately in Christ, all these things in Christ, but even what Christ does among your fellow saints. Let's pray. Lord God, you are so good to us indeed. What can we say to these things? Even the Lord Jesus himself, caught up in these things and rejoicing and giving thanks to you that you have given such things to mere men, and not to the wisest, not to the greatest, but to very ordinary people. 
And Lord, we ourselves are in that same situation, and we ourselves rejoice in your goodness. We are amazed at the power that you have given us. We are so thankful, Lord, that we see, we have blessed eyes, we have blessed ears that you have made us to hear and to see these things, and you have blinded us to the lies of Satan. We're not listening to him. We pray that we never would. Lord, what an amazing thing that Christ should die for such people as ourselves, should write our names in blood, as it were, in his great book. And Lord, the world should sooner end than for him not to in the final day to bring all those names and to have them all accounted for before you. Well, Lord, we are amazed at these things. How we pray, Lord, that you would make it our business indeed to have as much joy as we possibly can, not as the world does. It only leads to horrible sadness and emptiness and ultimately to destruction. But Lord, as you have given to your people, you delight in our joy. And we pray, Lord, that we would bring you joy in delighting in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.